I hope you had a wonderful week in God's Word and Genesis 1. I also hope that you've just completed and enjoyed your first discussion with a discussion group focused around the first lesson in the God of the Word series, Beginnings Lesson 1. Now let's talk just a little bit more about that. A number of years ago, our son Trevor came home from his 15-month deployment in Afghanistan. His one-year-old child didn't know his father at all. The baby's mom's health had prevented her from raising him. And so in our son's absence, we had reared our grandson since infancy. And of course, our grandson viewed us as his parents. But Trevor needed to help his child change that. One particular night, I remember Trevor asking me to please leave the baby's bedroom after we prayed over and you know said the good night bit to him with the explanation, I want to be the last one to leave the room at night and the first one to arrive in the morning. Trevor knew his son was too young to understand very much about his life and certainly all the tragedy that had befallen that young family since his birth. But Trevor was seeking to communicate to his son something he knew the baby could grasp. I will be here for you. When you sleep and when you rise, I am here. Well, folks, God has given us his word in order to reveal himself to us. And like my grandson with his father, our ability to comprehend God is very limited. Now, the creation account was not written in order to give us all the scientific details of creation. What it does say is absolutely scientifically accurate. But God's intent wasn't to explain the how of creation so much as the who of creation. He wants us to know him. My son wanted his son to know something about who he is also to understand their relationship to one another and know how he feels about him. And similarly, God has given us the account of creation to reveal who he is, to define our relationship with him and know how he feels about us. Now in this lesson on Genesis 1, 1 to 25, we find a great deal of information about who God is. The following lessons we'll deal a little more with those issues of our relationship to God and how he feels about us. There are a number of things God has revealed to us in this passage about his nature. I'm going to highlight just two. Well, Genesis is actually a Greek word that means beginning, just that, beginning. The theology contained in this book sets the stage for all the other teachings of the Bible. We're going to spend a good bit of time in Genesis because it will help us understand the rest of the Bible so much better to have a thorough understanding of Genesis. And these first 11 chapters of Genesis cover the affairs of the entire human race over thousands of years of primeval history. The remaining chapters revolve exclusively around one family and the lives of the four men that we know as the patriarchs of Israel. I guess we could summarize Genesis by saying it tells us who God is, it gives the history of the ancient world, 
and also the history of that particular race of people who safeguarded all this knowledge and through whom it's been transmitted to the rest of the world. Now, while four men dominate chapters 12 through 50 of Genesis, four main events dominate chapters 1 through 11. And those events are, first, the creation, as we've started studying. Secondly, the fall of man into sin. Then third, the flood, that great judgment of God that fell at the end of an era, marked the end of an era. And finally, fourthly, the Tower of Babel incident, which resulted in the division of people groups and God's choosing of one particular race through whom he would reveal himself to us. Those four events we will be covering in our beginning study. Now, conservative scholars generally accept that Moses wrote Genesis and the four books of the Old Testament that follow. Jesus called these books the books or law of Moses. Together, these five books are known as the Pentateuch, which means five-volumed book. With regard to the events in Genesis, obviously Moses wasn't an eyewitness. He probably knew something about Israel's patriarchs from oral tradition, but there was no human witness to creation so God must have directly revealed the information in these early chapters of Genesis to Moses. But why would God have chosen to reveal the information about creation at that time in history, you know, Moses' day, rather than to an earlier generation or a later one? I find that it very much helps me to understand the Bible to know something about what was going on historically at the time each book was written. In this case, to do so, we need to jump ahead a bit in the story of the Bible to the time in which Moses actually lived, 400 years after Abraham's time. And that's when God raised up Moses to lead the Israelites, Abraham's descendants, out of slavery in Egypt, a story you probably are all familiar with. And you may know that for 40 years, Moses and the Israelites wandered in the desert. Most scholars think this is a very likely time during that 40 years of wandering that Moses put the first five books of the Bible into writing. But when exactly might God have revealed the creation account to Moses? We can't know for certain, but one interesting theory offers a reasonable explanation. You may know that in Exodus 3, Moses is first called by God to deliver the Israelites from captivity in Egypt. And he asks God, who am I and that I should, you know, be the deliverer? And suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what's his name? And what shall I tell them? Well, God answered Moses on that occasion, I am who I am. Tell them the I am sent me to you. Israel had been in Egypt for roughly 400 years with nothing but oral traditions about the God of their forefathers. They knew about the many gods of Egypt, but who was this I am? They surely would have wondered. 
Moses also needed to know who was calling him to such an enormous task. Could the I am equip him to do it? He also knew the Israelites would need to be convinced that the God who was calling his people and tell them his people and telling them to courageously walk out of Egypt was actually powerful enough to make this happen. Hearing the creation story surely would have given Moses and the Israelites the confidence they needed. Now, this first chapter of Genesis describes creation being called into existence by God out of nothing. The Latin term for out of nothing is ex nihilo. God is and was the first cause. Have you thought about the fact that creation is the greatest miracle of all time? Think about that. If God created everything from nothing, then any other miracle at all, I mean, you know, raising the dead, allowing a man to be swallowed by a giant fish, causing the sun to stand still in the sky for 24 hours, instantly restoring to health those who were infirmed since birth, and giving new spiritual life to all who come to faith in Jesus. All of those things are easy to accept if God could create everything from nothing. Now, if creation wasn't an act of God, there are really only two possible explanations about the origin of the universe. The first is that everything sprang from absolutely nothing. And to tell the truth, that's just an idea no one takes seriously because it's totally unreasonable. The other possibility is that it arose from random impersonal forces. And that's the atheist point of view. That matter has simply always existed, and everything else that exists does so by random chance. You probably realize that many who hold this view accept the Big Bang theory. They just can't explain from where the matter and energy that caused the explosion came. Now, the scientific evidence for the Big Bang theory, I've been told, is absolutely overwhelming. And while the Bible doesn't say anything about a Big Bang, per se, there's actually nothing in the theory that contradicts Genesis. Now, some people think that the Big Bang cosmology presupposes biological evolution. But actually, the Big Bang theory addresses the question of the origin of space and time not the question of the origin of biological life. So accepting the Big Bang Theory doesn't necessarily mean we have to accept evolution. As one author wrote, the biblical account of creation doesn't conflict in any way with the Big Bang Theory. We just know who banged it. The late Robert Jastrow, an American astronomer and planetary physicist was a self-proclaimed agnostic, you know, someone who says there's no way to know if a God really exists. And here's his conclusion in his own words. Again, an agnostic. Here are his words. Astronomers now find that they have painted themselves into a corner because they've proven by their own methods that the world began abruptly, 
as a product of forces they cannot hope to discover. Jastro says that there are what I or anyone would call supernatural forces at work is now, I think, a scientifically proven fact. Isn't that something? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, is loud and clear. Before creation, before time, before anything, there was God. Let's move on and look at verse 2 as well. Look at verses 1 and 2 together, in fact, and some, some wonder exactly what first 1 describes and whether first 2 might give us some context for that. Does this first verse that speaks of the creation of the heavens and earth actually describe an act of creation? Was this God's first act of creation, the heavens and the earth? Or is it just a comprehensive summarizing uh, statement, you know, of all those details that follow? If verse 1 does describe an act of creation, at the very least it must imply that God created matter, you know, the substance from which all things are formed. The universe in its, its most primitive form exploded into universe at the command of the eternal transcendent God. Verse 2 speaks of creation in terms of formlessness and emptiness and darkness. And those are terms some people point out that aren't used to describe any act of God somewhere else, anywhere else in Scripture. In fact, some scholars even find these terms, these descriptive terms, to be inconsistent with the work of God. Well, there are at least two ways to understand those terms, and the first is just not to be worried about them as being inconsistent with the work of God. It, they may, these terms may merely point out the fact that at this point, creation wasn't finished. God took what started as formless, empty, and without light, and then brought out brought every, uh, everything else about as we know it into existence during those six days in which he worked. But I thought you should know that there is a second view. It may not be talked about very much, but there is a second view that this formless and dark condition described in verse 2 portrays an undesirable state and suggests that a gap exists between verses 1 and 2 in which a, maybe a catastrophe occurred, perhaps the judgment of a pre-Adamic race before Adam, which maybe could even include the fall of Satan and his angels. And this view proposes the possibility that the earth could have been without form and void for millions of years, you know, as a, a chaos of wasteness and emptiness and darkness. And according to this view, the remainder of chapter one describes a restorative work of God. Well, regardless of which view one takes, verse 2 also tells us that the Spirit of God hovered over all that was created. We see here an intentional, anticipatory act of preparation. Just as God's Spirit hovers over the hearts today, our hearts preparing us 
to receive God's truth and preparing our hearts for fruitful work. Have you sensed God hovering over your heart this week, preparing to teach you and work in and through you as you've read these first verses of Genesis? Well, from verses 1 and 2, we learn that God is creator of all, that he's active and powerful, that he exists as a spirit, that he's a personal being with intelligence and will, and carefully considers and prepares and initiates, hovers over his work. But we also learn that God transcends his creation. That is, he's, he's separate from it and therefore not bound by time or space. He existed before these. And if this is true, as the Bible says it is, then we need to acknowledge that what we call empirical evidence, that is everything that we can just know with our physical senses, that's insufficient to reveal all truth because there must be something more. There is something more. There's something bigger. There is someone bigger. In his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer suggests that we often make the mistake of viewing God as the highest in an ascending order of beings, you know, from a single cell and going on up to a fish and then to an animal and then to man, to an angel, to a cherub, and ultimately to God. But God's transcendence means that he is in a category all by himself. All things that are created are in a category of that which is not God. And God stands alone, entirely apart from all created things. He stands apart in unapproachable light. And I dare say that each of us has found life in one way or another to be disappointing. And we've all sought for something beyond ourselves, something bigger. You may have read J.R.R. Tolkien's classic novel, The Hobbit, or maybe even seen that movie. That book captures well this idea of something more. The main character, Bilbo, Bilbo Baggins, He's challenged to venture out and become a part of something bigger. He knows there's something more out there. And here we are learning that the God who transcends his creation is the something more for which we all long. God transcends his creation. He's the something more we're looking for. Now, at the time God revealed the creation account to Moses, the Israelites were certainly disappointed with life. They and their ancestors had been enslaved for generations, 400 years. And to make matters worse, the false teachings of the ancient Near Eastern lore had allowed for no clear distinction between the gods and the elements. For centuries, the people of Israel had heard superstitions about the sun, the sky, the water, and the land that all abounded around a pantheon of gods. 
But with the revelation of Genesis 1, God corrected this thinking. He wanted Israel to know him as he wants us to know him, as the one who transcends life. He's the something more for which we secretly long, the something more we crave. My friends, is something, it isn't something that we can do for God. Some of us are trying so hard to do something for God, believing that alone will satisfy us. Using our spiritual gifts isn't going to fill this longing any more than obedience to his commands, as important as that is, will fill it. It's not anything we're going to discover in creation or in any of God's gifts to us. God stands alone in the category of something more. It's he, he himself, whom we crave. Well, as we move on, we see days of creation. And there are a number of views about what these days of creation really mean. One view is that each day was a literal 24-hour period of divine created activity. And that is based on that phrase, and there was evening and there was morning. That is probably a, a pretty obvious view. A second view is that each day was a literal 24-hour literal period, but not a 24-hour period necessarily of God's creative work, but a 24-hour period, the 24-hour period in which God revealed his creative acts to Moses. You know, like on day one, he told Moses about the things here described as day one. And then the next day, he told Moses these next things and so on. There's a third view, and that is that each day represents actually an extended geological age prior to man's presence on earth. And that would be more consistent with what scientists are saying these days. Then there's a fourth view, very popular today, and that is that the days are actually non-literal and non-sequential, not in order, but a literary framework to present God's creative works topically. In other words, all the events described are exactly what God showed Moses, but Moses, for literary, used a literary device to arrange these events in a way that's memorable for us. As I said, that view is enjoying a lot of popularity at present. And the main support for it is found in the fact that the six days described, they do fall into two triads that really parallel one another. Maybe you notice that in the first three days, the realms of light and sky and land are created. And God's described then in this, uh, excuse me, and in the second three days, God is described as creating things that dominate or rule over each of those spheres that are portrayed in the first triad. Now, Bible students are likely to continue debating these views of the days of creation. But none of the views detracts from the critical information that God brought all creation into existence. 
and that he did so by his spoken word. The Hebrew word for word is D-A-V-A-R, devar. Interestingly, devar is also the Hebrew word for deed. When God speaks, it is done. That's what we see here in Genesis. And the fact that God created light on the first day, yet the heavenly bodies, the sun, moon, and stars, not until the fourth day, doesn't necessarily mean the days of creation aren't sequential. They may be. An Old Testament British scholar, Gordon Wenham, reminds us that light is a form of energy and may be produced in many different ways, not just by sun and stars, which weren't created until the fourth day. Contemporary cosmologists say that the universe began with a hot, big bang, which must have made a very bright light. Now, seven times in Genesis, beginning in verse 4, we're told that God saw his creation to be good. His creation in its original state was perfect, unmarred. And here in the fourth verse of the Bible, we learn that God is a moral being. He recognizes and is pleased with a standard that he calls good. As we read the creation account, we become increasingly aware that God carefully prepared all creation for the existence of mankind. Science helps us with this as well, explaining that the Earth orbits the sun at the speed of 19 miles per second. Did you know that fact? And travels 595 million miles a year. Amazingly, those revolutions around the sun are punctual, never missing a second. But if the sun was closer to the earth, we would die of heat. No animals, no mankind. If we, it were further, we'd freeze. And the moon's gravity, it not only creates the tides, it's what keeps the earth's tilt at near 23.5 degrees resulting in seasons. Any different, and the temperature variations on the earth would be much greater. And these and many other God-ordained provisions for life are what scientists call the fine-tuning of the universe. Now, you may have heard of the theoretical physicist Stephen Hawking, or even read some of his works. And he suggests that a vast number of universes actually exist. And he believes that if enough universes exist, then by random chance, one or more could all have, have all that's necessary, not only to sustain life, but to be as finely tuned as our planet is for intelligent life to flourish. But the statistical probability is infinitesimal, really almost unbelievable. There's simply no scientific explanation for the fine-tuning of our universe that's more likely than that a grand designer carefully planned and arranged everything just as it is, as Genesis 1 tells us. 
Now, there's another fact that you may know of, and that is something called the Cambrian Explosion. It's been called Biology's Big Bang. Both the Big Bang and the Cambrian Explosion offer scientific confirmation of what Genesis 1 tells us. The Cambrian Explosion, if you haven't heard of that, refers to the fossil records that have been discovered that demonstrate a very sudden and abrupt and out-of-nowhere appearance of most of the major animal phyla on the earth, rather than by a progressive process of natural selection. Many proponents of evolution fail to acknowledge that Charles Darwin himself discussed this in the mid-1800s as one of the main objections that could actually be made against his theory. Could such a discovery ever be made? And now it has. Well, we see the terms separated, gathered, and produced described as aspects of God's creative work in the physical world in Genesis 1. You looked up those verses that highlight those terms, and you know these terms also reflect God's spiritual work within each believer in Jesus Christ. God works to separate the believer from sin. The work of gathering may be related to the broken pieces of our lives. God gathers our hurts and failures and gives them to, uh, take, turns them into opportunities for fruitful work. And he produces new life and good works in every believer. According to Genesis 1, 1 to 25, God took what was shapeless and formless and made something good from it. And oh, wouldn't you agree that nature is a wonder? Consider the animal kingdom alone. I'm sure you've heard, like I have, that marine biologists have photographs that have been taken by special deep sea equipment showing creatures at the bottom of the sea that no human eye has ever seen. Some of these are amazingly complex and beautiful creatures. The various features, abilities, colors, and sizes of animals are a mind-boggling display of God's love of variety and organization and detail. Yeah, I'm sure you'd agree what God made is surely good. He created good things because he is good. The transcendence of God may make us fearful, but you know what? The goodness of God encourages us not to be afraid. That's so important. Let me say it again. While the transcendence of God may make us a little timid and fearful to approach him, the goodness of God encourages us not to be afraid. And folks, that's the right balance, the right approach to knowing God, that balance. In discussing God's goodness, A.W. Tozer, I mentioned him earlier, he writes, the whole outlook of mankind might be changed if we could all believe that the God of heaven, though exalted in power and majesty, is eager to be friends with us. You see, he is the vast and deep something more for which we all are looking. We long for him. But if he's transcendent, can we ever know him? 
can we? While we know him generally by observing creation, the special and specific information we need to really know him is revealed to us. It's revealed in his written word, the Bible, and in his living word, Jesus Christ. And that brings us full circle. Just as my son wanted his son to know him, the creation account certifies that God desires to reveal himself to us. His goodness invites you and me to draw close. Have you heard his invitation this week as you've examined his word? Come closer. He invites you. He invites me. You are too small to understand very much. But I want you to know me, he says. He wants us to know him. I want you, he says, to know who I am. So, Father, we do come this week. We want to come close to you. Lord, teach us who you are through your word. Thank you for this opportunity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a good week.